Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio this week. And for your presenters today, we have myself, Jacob, and we actually also have Ari, who is going to be our co-presenter today. Um, but unfortunately, they are running just a bit late um, due to the fact that there were bus um, replacement services on their tram, on their shram, um, public transport sort of line. But um, they should hopefully be here soon, and um, they'll get to introduce themselves um, shortly. Now, I guess the first thing I'd like to kind of say is I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandry land of the Kula Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty was never ceded. Now, I guess there's... um. We're going to, it's December the 10th on um, this Friday, and I guess, I mean, probably usually we're for the start of, um, of each of our programs. We usually like to kind of go through some of the kind of highlights and, you know, some of the kind of headline major sort of political developments that might have happened, in, I guess, in the past week. And of course, we also have a pretty packed program um, with a number of interviews sort of um, planned. Um, we're going to be um, hopefully getting, we're going to be getting an update on Sudan. Uh, we're going to be doing an interview with the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network about global vaccine inequality. And then, of course, we're also going to be interviewing um, an author who just recently wrote a book um, this year called The Impossible History of Shotsky's Sister. So that will be an interview with Marie Roberts, who will be, she'll be doing at the start of um, this morning, uh, with the first interview we have. Now, in the meantime, some news stories I want, uh, one news story I wanted to highlight is taken straight from the pages of Green Left. Now, um, Tens of thousands of teachers um, went on strike across New South Wales on December 7th and, of course, with rallies against staff shortages and for sustainable workloads with competitive sa- um, salaries. In Sydney, um, we had at least more than um, 15,000 teachers and principals gathered in Hyde Park and marched to the New South Wales Parliament where they heard from their colleagues and union officials. The the New South Wales Teachers Federation, which is the equivalent to the Australian Education Union in um, in the New South Wales context, in defiled a, a industrial relations commission order to cancel the strike to demand the government listened. It was the union's first major industrial action in more than um, more than a decade. 
Now, one of the kind of interesting chants that was regularly heard at as part of this um, during this teacher strike was "More than thanks," and this referred to the government government's pretend support for teachers when they work 55 hours a week or more to keep up with higher student needs and constant curriculum changes. Their wages have fallen behind other professions, and one in eight teachers' profession. A one in eight teachers leave the profession within six years because of the pay and workload pressures. And across the state, we're having a situation where more than a thousand full-time teaching positions have not been filled and the work conditions means it's hard to recruit talented people to become teachers. The New South Wales Teachers Federation is demanding a 5% pay rise across the board with an additional 2.5% rise for the most experienced teachers, together with um, two extra hours extra planning and preparation time per week. This, this challenges the government's um, current sort of policy, who, <clears throat> who have um, essentially who in 2011 have opposed a public sector wage cap of 2.5%, which has kind of, which has meant more wage cuts for all public sector workers, including school teachers. New South Wales Education Minister Sarah Mitchell launched a ritualic attack on the New South Wales Teacher Federation on the day of the strike in the Sydney Mooring held, including that teachers deserve better representation and that the, you know, the New South Wales Teachers Federation actively fights any move to increase transparency in the school system and blocks initiatives to lift outcomes and support um, um, students. Um, and New South... Um, New South, New South Wales teacher, um, President Angela, um, Galavalitos addressed her comments telling the rally that the union was more than happy to talk about transparency. The government has covered up hundreds of pages of documents from its own department, revealing that New South Wales is currently facing a large and growing teacher shortage, he said. The documents state that within um, that, that we will run out of teachers in five years. Where's the transparency in the government cover-up, he said. Um, Garlitos acknowledged the distance um, teachers had travelled to attend the strike, those taking their first industrial action. One you, experience your, once you, one, you experience your first collective action, you never go back and ended. We are never going to go away. We'll be back. And um, one of the one of the um, other things that the rally kind of heard from is that you know there were teachers from a number of suburban and regional schools that addressed the strike. They gave details of how difficult it is to teach. For for instance, staff shortages meant that up to four classes have to merge in the library. One teacher received louder applause when she said, "The New South Wales government is throwing us under the bus while we attempt to clean up their mess." And from um from the from the pages of Green Left, um, an experienced primary school teacher told Green Left, one in five te- high school teachers are being forced to teach outside their own subject areas because of the teacher shortage. It is simply unfair to higher school certificate students, especially to be taught by teachers outside their area expertise. And so, essentially, um, going into that, um, concluding this story, um, the the there was basically. Um, the teachers are going to keep on in New South Wales are going to keep on fighting. And I think, you know, one kind of comment I kind of guess want to make is I think it's about time that um, teachers 
um, have um, start start mobilising and and and, and and fighting for better wages and conditions because it's actually been I think a recurring kind of instance for too long that you know teachers have had to suffer with very high workloads. Um, they had they've had to deal with the fact that you know they're not getting properly compensated and paid um, for for their work. And I think you know. Um, I hope in the case of the Victorian kind of context, um, because there is quite, there is kind of active, there, there are active discussions happening right now about, um, within the AU about taking, um, industrial action at some point. And so I think, you know, um, there's already a certain commitment that they will take industrial action at some point. So I think it'll be great if, um, the teachers in Victoria can be inspired by this example and, you know, begin, um, begin some kind of strike action because, a lot of the kind of conditions are pretty much, you know, a lot of the, the issues that affect teachers in New South Wales also affect teachers um, within Victoria. So I might just go, I'll play a quick, I'll play a quick few announcements. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Get your radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tee that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post and there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our t-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jail black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. The current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterized by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, Declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs. And students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, 
It has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. All right, welcome back to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And um, I was just I was just mentioning at the start of the program that our other co-presenter was running a bit late due to bus replacement services, but they're now here. Yes, hello, it's me, Ari, yeah. who lives on the Hurstbridge line, so I'm late. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, we're kind of very happy to have Ari here, and so now we can probably go into discussing kind of another news story that's kind of been dominating a bit, a bit of the headlines, well, at least in the UK. Now... I'll, um, I don't really, I haven't done enough kind of reading about the current kind of COVID situation in Britain to really sort of have a really informed opinion about it. But I mean, it's kind of worth kind of noting that, you know, um, they are, um, COVID cases are starting to get out of control again. And I think they're exp- exponentially kind of increasing. I think they're going up to almost 20,000 to 30,000 a day. And, and of course, in response, um, the government has kind of introduced kind of new plan ball B rules. They haven't gone in into any sort of lockdown, but they've started reintroducing kind of restrictions because, um, for, for people's sort of information, um, Britain has sort of been open essentially in a similar state to Victoria, New South Wales with pretty much no restrictions, except I think, um, New South Wales and Victoria, by point of comparison, I think, you know, they've actually to their credit, have actually maintained some of the, the necessary sort of public health kind of measures um, in terms of... Um, but, of course, as I said, I'm not com- properly kind of informed. The main important story I wanted to talk about in relation to Britain was in relation, as they are starting to impose kind of COVID restrictions, there has been, a inter- there's been an interesting kind of leak. But essentially, Boris Johnson and um, the Tories are essentially under fire by the media and, of course, lots of people are rightfully kind of angry at them because, essentially, the la- um, there, there has been a leaked video where, um, where essentially, um, which essentially has um, basically shows the Prime Minister's then spokeswoman um, essentially laughing about... about um, about being asked about an alleged party during a mock kind of press conference. Now, essentially, what, what, what has kind of been revealed and what has been transpired is when Britain was under a very kind of strict kind of lockdown, you know, the polit, the prime, um, the politicians, some of the politicians and staffers at Dowling Street, which is like obviously the equivalent to, um, the federal parliament within, um, Britain were having a party. And that was when, our indoor restrictions were completely kind of restricted. And the fact that um, there's now leaked video of said people who are involved in these party, in this party, you know, laughing about it, um, you know, it, it is actually pretty despicable when you think about it because it, it essentially shows um, for a lot of these kind of politicians 
um, they actually, it's almost like they see themselves as feudal lords, um, that yeah. rule over the, um, that rule over the peasants and they can basically do whatever they want with no kind of consequences, uh, and that is until, until they're caught and then, and mm. then of course Boris Johnson has apparently, you know, made a number of apologies, but you know, it's actually like yeah. in the context of the fact when last year at this time, Britain was under a very strict kind of lockdown. People mm. weren't able to see their families and friends. And then to think that these politicians think they're, they're so above the rules that they would uh, even host a party. I, like, I just think it's it's quite despicable in a lot of ways. Yeah, and they're not actually being punished for it necessarily. They're just like the spokeswoman in question resigned. But like you said, Boris Johnson is going around offering apologies, but nobody's getting... I, again, I also am not versed enough in the situation in the UK to know if this would be applicable, but as far as I've read, nobody's getting fines or like retroactively kind of having any of these measures enforced on them, which is not too unreasonable, I guess. But it's still... It is a very clear example of the, the whole... COVID situation in a lot of the world, which has been very much one set of rules for most people and then a different set of rules for the elite. Mm. And one of the kind of ambiguous things is they're not even sure about whether a party had happened or not, and that's where there's going to be an investigation. So Boris Johnson repeatedly kind of denies it. Yeah. Um, but essentially, yeah, the comments were essentially along the lines of actually joking about having a party and almost making fun of, of the fact that people were under lockdown restrictions, but they could possibly get away with it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like I think, according to the BBC, that they have either declined to have an investigation or they closed it because of lack of evidence. So it's not, yeah, it's not for sure that they did have a party, but certainly it's um, not a great look joking about having one. Yeah. So and I and I and, and to be honest, I I would almost suspect that um, they possibly could have been a small group of mm. staffers, given that the fact that they're making such jokes, I think, is quite indicative. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's definitely like the the amount of public anger at Boris Johnson for this is going to be interesting, and it'll be and I think we'll definitely have to follow up on exploring a bit more, you know, the COVID situation in Britain, um, because yeah, as both me and Ari said, we're not necessarily, we don't, we're not necessarily completely informed about, you know, what are the causes, um, of what, what, why they're in this kind of state. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely, we'll definitely want to kind of follow up in the future. Now I'll go, I guess I'll play, I'm going to play a quick announcement and then we'll go on to our first interview for the program. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. (laughs) 
All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and we're very happy to have our first interview for the program. We have Marie Roberts, who is actually the author of The Impossible History of Trotsky's Sister, which is a book that she just recently wrote and has been published as of this year. So good morning, Marie. Good morning. So I was going to pass it on to our co-presenter, Ari, to ask some of the questions. So to ask the first question. So, All right. Hello, Marie. Uh, I wanted to start off by asking um, what you can tell us about the, the influences and maybe um, like both political and historical that inspired you to write The Impossible History of Trotsky's Sister. Sure. Feel free to interrupt me at any time. <laughs> it's a long, it's a long, uh, long topic. Uh, so my um, my inciting idea, I guess, was finding Olga Kamenaeva, who really was Trotsky's sister, and, and, and for any writer, she was really a gift because, well, she a writer in the West, because there, there wasn't a lot not a lot known about her in English or translated in English language. Um, and uh, that kind of gives you all sorts of possibilities, but there are a few things that were known about her. Um, but she had the misfortune of being married to Lev Kamenev, who went from being one of Stalin's inner circle to execution, unfortunately for him, in 1937, in the first of the Moscow show trials. So, of course, history came knocking for Olga, and she was executed in 1941. In my novel, she survives and finds her way to Australia through the displaced person's camp system after World War II. So my uh, influences, I guess, in, in writing the book were feminism. I, I um, became uh, conscious, I guess, of feminism in my early 20s and also left-wing politics and left-wing um, writings in my early 20s. So I wanted to use and transmit that to others in a readable and engaging way. I was a history graduate, so I guess that was another um, influence or inspiration. Um, history is written by the victors been explored by many left-wing historians and figures like Walter Benjamin, which quote I include in the first um, pages of my novel. Olga was an old Bolshevik, meaning that the people who planned and started the revolution and many thousands of them were killed by Stalin over time. So they often became a race in history as well. So that was kind of an, an inspiration was to sort of rescue someone from the dustbin of history, as, it, as it's called. Um, the Russian Revolution itself and Russian history uh, were an inspiration. Um, the the jolt that was to world politics. I'd read a lot of Russian literature and was struck by the way uh, Russian authors were always coming to terms with their society and how it accelerated and how that just accelerated in the early 20th century and the politics of the of Russia. Um, in a bit in contrast to the sort of um, literature, I guess that that Australia produces, which is not. Well, the fiction's not particularly political. Um, Olga Kamenova was uh, head of the Russian theatre for a time and very involved with the women's movement. So, for me, these were obvious things to incorporate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you got any other questions, or should I keep keep going, Ari? (laughs) Well, kind of following (laughs) on from what you were just saying, uh, what sort of influences did you take from the the revolutionary theatre? In yeah. from the October Revolution era and that sort of thing. What sort of influences did you take? Yeah, from the theatre. Um, so there was incredible part of the history of Russia was art, or, or the revolution was its arts movement. Mm. Um, inc- 
incredible um, poetry, uh, fiction, um, acting, theatre, uh, just, yeah, incredible. And and you had, um, I guess they're called kind of polymaths like um, Mayakovsky, who wrote plays, um, drew and, you know, wrote and absolutely fabulous um, poetry. I was blown away by his poetry, which I started to um, read a lot of to, to kind of get the feeling for this book. But in particular, I had borrowed from this play, um, a fabulous play of his called Mystery Booth, um, which, is, which uh, he used to talk about uh, the revolution and revolutionary politics. Mm. Uh, and I used that class of work for the Australian New Theatre, who also features in the book. Um, and Mayakovsky's incredible imagination and just the flowering of imagination in the revolution is all on show in that play. Um, he used to play in the North Pole, which is pretty incredible. <laughs> it actually has an Australian in it who visits from from the South, uh, which is pretty amazing. And I quote a little bit of the speech in, in the book um, from that. And it has an amazing cast of characters who are struggling with each other. So the it calls them the clean and the unclean. Um, the clean being the bourgeoisie and the unclean being the workers, uh, which is, I guess, a Mayakovsky joke. Mm. <laughs> a government minister, priest, Eskimo, and then you've got the revolutionary actors. So I use those in my play as well, as well as uh, some of the structure that we used in the play. If that's, um, mm. uh, uh, that makes sense? Yeah. I have to mention Chekhov. Um, he was a mm. big influence in writing um, the way I wrote as well. Uh, his short stories were a huge influence in my, on my prose technique, um, but also obviously his plays and and the sorts of things that happen in his plays and the the ability and inability of individuals to make make a difference um, in pre-revolutionary Russia. So he, of course, was strictly pre-revolutionary, but he was a friend of many of the later revolutionary artists, mm. as was his wife, um, Olga Knipper, who's a famous actress, and she's, in, she's mentioned as well. Um, he's a lasting influence to this day, obviously, on the theatre. He still gets produced. But his plays, whilst they're often seen as more philosophical these days, there's always that underlying element of politics in much of the picture, and his plays can be seen that way as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with uh, taking that material and transporting it, I guess, to Australia and to Australia of the 1950s and the milieu of the new theatre, um, which I'm not sure whether a lot of people know much about, but it was um, a very vibrant arm of the Australian Communist Party and actually ran up till the 1980s. I think it's Lastly, in Bastard, longer in Sydney than it did in Melbourne. But um, they faced a lot of censorship and blacklisting for the sorts of work that they did. And I feel that uh, people have sort of forgotten that a bit. Um, yeah. got that censorship was a tool of the right, um, not of the left. So that is something mm. that I wanted to highlight as well in terms of the revolutionary art. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned that there was an Australian character in one of the plays that you. Um, were kind of directly influenced by what kind of what reasons I guess did you have for setting the the book in Australia? 
Um, yes, a good question. Uh, <laughs> not because I had to do less research, I say, although it did mean I probably <laughs> had to um, learn Russian, so that's mm. probably a good thing, because uh, I probably couldn't have done that, I don't think. Uh, that would have been my, um, uh, yeah, uh, probably a bridge too far for me. Yeah. Um, but the past is another country, I think, is somewhat said one. Um, so you still have to do the research when you when you do historical fiction. Mm. Uh, what I... Uh, what I wanted to do was, because I, I, I'm not, I wasn't, you know, obviously, I'm not Russian, I wasn't, you know, I'm not intimately um, knowledgeable about the revolution. I wanted to use that as a reflection more um, as to what was actually happening in Australia at the time. Mm. So that's really the, the core of the novel, is how Olga Kamineva engages with the Australian community. Um, and I wanted to highlight, I guess, the repression of the left and the position of women in Australia in the 1950s. Um, there are parallels there between kind of, um, in a way, Zara's repression, so not as bloody, um, obviously, but certainly there was censorship, there was blacklisting, uh, you know, women, uh, the position of women was legally um, uh, oppressive because, you know, for example, women couldn't work... Um, uh, yeah. Once they get married in a lot of professions, so yeah. that you know, I think that's something that people you know kind of forget conveniently. Mm. Um, and post-war themes such as the impact of the Petrov Royal Commission and the attempts to ban or stop um, Australian uh, left-wing progressive people from operating uh, was something that I wanted to explore. I also wanted to explore the interplay between the thousands of migrants who came to Australia, experienced. God knows what trauma, um, and the Australians who did this relative ignorance of that and really didn't want to know about mm. that part of, of British history. And so that's where Olga, my character, main character, finds herself um, in the midst of Box Hill, taking tea uh, and thinking, but hang on, I was head of the Russian Revolutionary Theatre, don't you want to know about that? Um, so that, that was kind of, in some ways, that was my first image. Uh, with Olga taking tea and thinking those things to herself but not really able to talk about it. And I wanted to explore what that meant and where that might lead in terms of the, yeah, the themes that I've talked about, um, the uh, the women's movement and the things that Olga would be involved in and how she might, how she might surface and how she might bring them to people's um, uh, attention in Australia. So... Yeah, that was that was kind of um, what I set out to do, and, and that's why I said in Australia, I guess. Mm, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, just got a question from Jacob. Well, um, Marie, I was gonna I was gonna see because we have a bit of time, um, because I'm um, usually I think that was sort of um in terms of our plan, that was probably our the last sort of second last question we're going to sort of ask. And I was guess I was going to give you a bit of an opportunity just for our listeners, if you wanted to kind of read a kind of passage from the book, and then you can and then we can have a bit of some final comments, and then tell people how they can potentially read the book. Sure. I'd be very happy to do that. Um, yes, yeah, so as I said, Olga uh, Kamineva, who was Proxy's sister, real sister in real life, um, you know, she's transported to Australia magically. Uh, and on this occasion, she's in a delicatessen um, and she she goes to the delicatessen because it reminds her of home and she can buy familiar food, not unusual ideas. 
Um, and, and in this one, uh, she comes across some people who are talking about one of the people who was executed with her in when she was in the concentration camp, uh, the concentration camp, gulag, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so, so here she is waiting for uh, to be served. On this occasion, she was looking for a good quality chamomile tea, some salami and a good dark bread. She waited at the counter for her turn. A woman stood next to her trying to slice of what they called Polish sausage, talking in a low voice to the shopkeeper. Did you hear that Vladimir died? If I was still living at home, I would spit on his casket. Yes, good reason. He was one of Stalin's men. We all felt his rich. It's a pity he was beyond ours. I hate to think what I would do to his body, the shopkeeper whispered over the counter. They even murdered their own. No loyalty, no shame. My cousin, Maria Spiridonova, she killed a landlord for the revolution. And how did they reward her? By lining her up and shooting her in the forest, said the woman. Ah, thought Olga, it was not quite like that. Well, she was one of them, and you know what they say, you lie down with dogs. Yes, but she was still my cousin, insisted the other woman. Olga thought Maria would have died soon anyway had she not been shot. Should I tell this woman? No, the fact is she was shot, but she did not die straight away. She lay groaning for quite some time. But she saved me by being on top and shielding me from view. I had been wounded but not dying quite as quickly as she was. The Maria that Olga knew was at the end of her life, even before the soldiers got to her. Olga had heard of her, of course, the once young revolutionary assassin, the woman who'd been beaten so badly by the Cossacks that a wave of sympathy had freed her from prison. Ah, Maria, politically, Olga's enemy, but in the camp, Olga had befriended her, a dark, hobbling old bird ready for the pot. She made sure Maria had broth when she cooled or some extra gruel, but Maria had not been long for this world. She'd had few teeth left, and the eyes of haunted you as a constant window into her pain. Maria had reproached Olga. In the end, you, Olga, were part of the problem that we, the socialist revolutionaries, were trying to solve. Some of my SR colleagues would have killed you if they'd come across you in a dark alley. Olga reminded Maria that the SR had tried to blow up her brother Trotsky's train twice. Maria had replied, well, he was your brother, not mine. It's a struggle for life and death. That's what a revolution is. In the end, Maria, who knows when the end is? You think you're right because of what transpired, because of Stalin? Stalin bubbled to the surface of the party like so much grease on the top of the soup. But I do not share your conviction that we're doomed just because of him. We had hopes of a better life. That we all did. All of us had glint of idealism, even you, Maria. People suffered under the Tsar. We thought we would put an end to suffering, but here we are. Is this the end? We don't know when that is. Not even Kobe knows that. If he did, he wouldn't be constantly looking over his shoulder. Thank you. Thank you. That was quite interesting. I do like that contrast between what people think is happening and what is actually happening. It's always one of my favourite writing devices. Oh, thank you. Yeah, basically, um, Reese, thanks for that. And I guess any kind of final comments you'd like to make, and also for our listeners' information, how can people kind of purchase your book? I mean, obviously people can purchase it from the normal means, which I won't say what those normal <laughs> means are. You probably have a more preferred way of people buying your book, not through yes. the normal means. <laughs> yeah. It is, 
it is online. Thanks, Jacob. Uh, and people can Google it and find it online if they wish to purchase it that way. But for self-published authors such as myself, it is much better to purchase it directly from the author. Um, and uh, you can do that through my website, which is Marie, M-A-R-E-E, F for Francis. That's Marie F. Roberts, R-O-B-E-R-T-S. MarieFRoberts.com.au and there's a contact form there which I can easily get back to people on. Um, it comes through to my normal email, so I say it specifically. And I can either post or deliver. I live in Brunswick, so if people are around that, that area, um, you know, I'm happy to deliver uh, books. Um, I had someone order 10 books for Christmas presents, which was very nice. Uh, so I was able to deliver those. Uh, that person, so they can give them away as Christmas presents. Um, yeah, so I've, um, I'm very exciting to be able to talk about the book. I love chatting to people about the book. If people have got book clubs that they think might be interested in the books, I'm happy to talk to people about how to make it available for book clubs as well. Um, and also, if people have uh, links with their local library and would like to read it um, for free through their local library, they can order it through their local library. So just put in an order with the ISBN number, which is on um, those well-known book websites, uh, or just um, contact me and I can give you the details that you need uh, to give the library to order it in. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, um, Marie. And, um, yeah, and um, just for um, listeners' information, um, when we upload the podcast of this, I'll make sure to include um, a link to your page um, on the listing for, for this when it gets uploaded on the freecr.org.au website. So, yeah, um, so that will make it obviously easier because sometimes you, if um, for some people who are kind of listening, it sometimes might be hard to just note down all the mm-hmm. um, a, a URL from um, from live to air. So yeah. Anyway, thank you very much, Marie. And um, yeah, um, I think it's a, I think it's actually a great accomplishment that you've um, been able to um, write a novel. Like you know, uh, that's writing a novel is actually something I would think about doing, mm-hmm. but I don't think I would ever find the time or the drive to even do it so yeah, i keep failing to do it so <laughs> oh thanks so much thanks uh, i really enjoyed the interview so thanks very much jake Benari. yeah thank you very thank much you. marie all right, you're, um, you're, we're just um, having a, um, a, a discussion with Marie um, Roberts, um, who is the author of a new book called The Impossible History of Trotsky's Sister. And just to kind of summarise the book, um, it's basically a book that um, attempts to, it's a work of historical fiction that um, actually uh, um, centres on Trotsky's sister, um, who I think was whose name was Olga, and yeah, um, basically the story is set in um, Australia in the nineteen kind of fifties, and yeah, you can um, you can purchase the book by going on Marie Roberts' um, website. But yeah, as I kind of said, I will upload that information on when we put on the podcast. Now, I guess um, for the next kind of part of the program, I thought I would play a quick announcement, and then maybe we'll go on to playing a bit of a song um, just to break things up before our second interview. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855am. Solidarity Breakfast. Your Saturday morning serving of union and working news. Current events, opinion and talkback. 
every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And as I said kind of before, I thought we would play a bit of a quick um, a song before we get on to the second interview for our program. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and I was going to play I've Lied by Archie Roach. Sitting here in a lonely old guest house I'm sure that my life is all through Scratching free and watching the gray mouse I'm making love to the memory of you For without you I'm weak and uncertain And I feel so naked and cold Like a window without any curtain My innermost feelings unfold The drink I just had it wasn't as bad as the first But drinking won't do When it's only for you I thirst I thirst For your kiss It quenches or burning It's sweeter then the sweetest of wine Now you're gone I find myself yearning For the love that I left behind Nobody can heal The pain that I feel inside and if I said I'm strong And I'm never wrong I've lied I've lied All 
right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and I'll just get, I'll just play um, a quick announcement, and then we'll get our second interview um, planned. Um, and you're just listening to I Blied by Archie Roach. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio and for our second interview for the program, we are very happy to have Sarah Sanada, um, who is a member of the Sudanese community in Melbourne, and she has also been heavily involved in solidarity campaigning around Sudan. And yeah, just for kind of listeners' information, because we've um, we have previously kind of covered what's been happening in Sudan, but. Essentially, since October, there has been this massive kind of movement against um, a military coup by the military kind of general, and that um, that has sort of promoted, you know, mass kind of struggle on the streets um, and so on. There's also been lots of police repression as well to, of this movement. Um, so, yeah, good morning, Sarah. Morning, Jacob. Yeah, and I guess maybe to kind of start off, what can you, I guess, tell us, I guess, about some of the kind of latest kind of developments that have kind of occurred in the kind of past month or so within Sudan, especially in terms of this mass movement that is mobilising against the military coup? Um, Okay, Uh, first of all, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which I am at the moment, which is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Islanders peoples listening to the show today and acknowledge that this land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, I would also like to use this platform platform to first acknowledge the fact the sacrifices of our martyrs, the martyrs of the Sudanese revolution who gave up their lives for freedom, peace and justice in Sudan. Now back to your question. Um, on the 25th of, Octo- of October, uh, the military staged a coup, overthrowing the sovereignty council in power and cutting off phone and internet access across the country and violently cracking down on all civilian protests, as, as you probably have um, discussed in your show. And then on October 30th was the first call for a millionth march across Sudan. Millions of people uh, turned out across Sudan in very well-coordinated millionth march against the coup. Uh, and since then, we've witnessed the rapid support forces, which are, you know, a military junta group that was created by authoritarian ruler Omar Bashir, um, so we've witnessed the RSF and the military personnel carrying out sweeping arbitrary arrests, um, including the prime minister and, and his cabinet at some point. 
that was targeted shooting and killing of peaceful, unarmed civilian protesters on a daily basis. Since then, um, we've had six million marches organized, um, and, and basically in response to the military coup. And then uh, they continued after the, the sham of, a, of an agreement that Prime Minister Hamdok signed with the, with the protest. Um, according to the Central Committee of Sudanese Doctors, we have at least 44 people who have been killed at the hands of the military and the rapid support forces so far, and hundreds of people wounded. Uh, tactics of fear and humiliation still exercised on the streets, like beating up citizens, using sticks and boots on the streets, including women and children, uh, sieging whole neighborhoods and suburbs, and cutting off bridges to prevent people from expressing their will. And uh, so, in response to all that, uh, the local resistance committees have issued a plan to continue with the millions marches. So the announced dates we have so far are on the 13th of December, the 19th of December, the 25th and the 30th of December, making it a total of 11 million marches since the coup on October 25th. Yeah. We're also seeing um, a lot of organizing happening to strengthen the local governance in the neighborhood le- at the neighborhood levels. Mm. And, um, yeah, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Sorry, I feel like I talked for too long. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, that you've given a kind of like very good kind of update. And I think I wanted to kind of hone in, I guess, to kind of one kind of detail. And then, and I think this has been something that has quite um, been a bit noticeable in, in the news because I guess in response to this, um, clearly in response to this mass movement, the kind of military is clearly um, starting to feel some kind of pressure. And so I wanted to kind of hear your comments about because on November 21st, um, there was essentially a deal kind of made with the kind of, well, from my understanding, the kind of what is sort of considered the civilian sort of government within Sudan as, as, um, as, and with the, between the military, which has basically, this has basically been a deal which has reinstated the Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok to essentially lead the cabinet in two elections in July. 2023. And in fact, I read another sort of article um, that the military um, basically said, "Oh, yeah, we'll be we'll be out of we'll be out of power. Um, we'll stop ruling, but that won't happen until July 2023." So, I guess what has been the response of the movement um, to this? Um, and you know, because this is in some sense a concession, but it's also also my reading from it from afar is basically, in a sense, they're trying to cling on to their power as much as as they possibly can. Exactly, exactly. Um, I mean, uh, first of all, I want to note that the country is currently still under the state of emergency announced by the military genocidal murderer General Burhan on October 25th. This emergency and uh, and protection of public safety act that they're using, which um, basically just gives them limitless power for an unlimited period. They have the right to raid homes. They have the right to seize funds. They prohibit regular movement of persons. They, they're able to do arbitrary arrests and, and, and sham trials where they can imprison and find peaceful unarmed protesters. Last week, we had an 11-year-old boy tried for protesting. Um, so, as, as you said, the, the, it's clear what they want is just power and, and, and taking complete control over the country. So, besides reinstating Hamdok as prime minister, the agreement is nothing but an attempt to legitimize the military coup. The current structure is, is, is no longer a civilian military partnership. 
despite the articles indicating that this new transitional period will create a new political framework, the, the, the reinstatement of Bashir loyalists, you know, the, we've been seeing since the, the military coup took place, they got rid of, you know, all um, civilians in leadership positions and they just reinstated Bashir, uh, Bashir loyalists to the, to the previous authoritarian, authoritarian regime. Um, dissolved the anti-corruption and fraud body that was put in place to, to investigate the ousted regime's corruption. Uh, they put an abrupt end to the work of the investigations into the June 3rd massacre that was carried out by RSF and supported by the military. It, it all shows that the true, the true desire to go back to the previous corrupt landscape. So even all attempts by the international community and the UN to support as they say, the transition to democracy in 2023 is simply just shoving the agenda of the U.S., the Troika, and the EU down the throats of Sudanese people. And we continue to resist. We resist the international meddling. We reject the sham agreement, and we, we protest all the human rights violations against the Sudanese people um, who have just been exercising the constitutional rights just to say no, no to the military. Hmm. And I guess, I mean, in that kind of context, I guess, what can you kind of tell us, I guess, in terms of the movement, like, you know, some of the kind of demands that are now being put forward by the protesters in Sudan, especially since, um, you know, I've been kind of hearing, like, comments kind of response to this from people within Sudan and from the movement that essentially the kind of um, the kind of attitude between uh, amongst this kind of movement is that they do not want to compromise at all. They do not want to accept any kind of future um, where the military has kind of any power. And I guess what I guess want to kind of hear some of your comments on that, especially in terms of what the protest movement is really kind of demanding um, in light of all these kind of developments and concessions uh, that the, um, that, you know, the military is trying to offer and not, and not necessarily doing any, anything. Um, You're absolutely right, Jacob. Uh, I mean, since, since the independence of Sudan from British rule, um, we've simply just had one military government after another with a very, very short, super brief, a few months of democracy. Um, so the demands, uh, we, so we, we have the experience of being ruled by the military, and it has proved to fail since the creation of Sudan as a nation. Uh, we've just had military governments that have just been one failure after another. We've seen nothing from them other than oppression. So the demands are quite simple and very clear. The people of Sudan are going out in the millions, organizing night protests in their neighborhoods, going out in millions marches, organizing. There's a sit-in in Darfur right now as we speak, and bravely standing unarmed in the face of extreme violence and live ammunition chanting the local resistance committee's main slogan, which is no partnership, no negotiation, no legitimacy, meaning we are not willing to partner or negotiate with military genocidal terrorists, nor are we giving them legitimacy. And um, I guess um, what can you, I guess we're probably getting to, I guess, a bit of um, out of um, to the end of, kind of, I guess, of the interview. And I guess what can you tell us? Can you give us any kind of final comments you'd like to make? And also um, in terms of like those who are, listening right now, especially within Melbourne, um, can you tell us about any sort of details about any sort of upcoming kind of solidarity actions or in general, how can people, you know, demonstrate solidarity with um, the protests and of the people of Sudan who are resisting this um, genocidal kind of military dictatorship, essentially? 
Thank you, Jacob. Thank you so much for providing, um, you know, this platform of yours to shed, lo- shed lights on events in Sudan. Um, I think the most imp- important thing is to keep the conversation alive, ask what's happening in Sudan. There are many ways that trade unions in Sudan can work with their counterparts globally to strengthen their local governance and make sure that, um, you know, the needs of the people are met to continue their fight against the authoritarian rule. Uh, unions in Sudan are sort of a new thing. We've just been subjected to it you know, crackdowns and oppression by all the previous authoritarian regimes. So we could need support in building, we could use support in building those alongside our our counterparts here in Australia. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of awareness raising also happening um, in Sudan with um, the way that they've been organizing the millions marches. They've been having different themes. So the one we had um, just yesterday was... Uh, uh, the theme was uh, to um, in solidarity with people uh, living with disabilities um, and how and their contribution to the revolution as well as their demands to live in a country that recognizes their needs and caters to them as equals. We had another march two days ago uh, in Kalakla, more focused on women issues and shedding light on the gender-based violence that Sudanese women have been facing at the hands of the military. So there's, there's a lot of activities happening like that. And, and, and the more light we're able to, sh- to shed on them, the more um, their demands are, uh, you know, uh, get more um, uh, like media attention and, and hopefully political attention as well. Uh, what happens is every time the local resistance committees call for a millions march in Sudan, you know, the Sudanese diaspora across the globe also organized uh, rallies and events in the cities where they live. So every time there was a millions march in Sudan, we always had one here in Melbourne as well. And they're usually either in the city or in Footscray. So just uh, look out for um, invitations for these rallies and protests on Facebook events um, and just join us Um reach out to uh, Sudanese people, use the hashtags. The ha- hashtags are extremely powerful. So the main hashtag for the revolution is uh, keep eyes on Sudan, keep eyes on Sudan or um, Sudan coup. Uh, and the third uh, and least, I think, use hashtag is no turning back because we're not because we're not turning back anymore. So please use the hashtags whenever you can and, and just um, join us and keep the conversation alive. Yeah. Well, um, thank you very much um, for that, Sarah. And, um, yeah, I think this was a, been a very informative um, interview for, and I think, you know, it is a very important, I think it is one of the most important kind of political movements um, that is kind of happening. And, you know, it is something that should absolutely be more more widely reported in kind of mainstream kind of media. And, yeah, we're very happy to, that we've been able to give solidarity to this struggle. And, yes, we wish you kind of all the best. And, yeah, we'll definitely continue to promote all the rallies and um, the actions that um, that um, come up and also do, be doing more interviews um, in the future with different Sudanese kind of activists um, covering this. So, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you so much. And uh, freedom, peace and justice for all. All right. Um, so we'll just, um, speaking to Sarah Sanada, um, who is a member of the Sudanese community and has been active in organizing solidarity campaigning with Sudan, especially in terms of the mass kind of movement, um, against the military coup, which is really in some sense, you know, as a socialist, I think it is an, almost like a strong kind of example of a mass kind of revolutionary sort of struggle. And I think, you know, this, 
there, there is actually the seeds of a potential revolution, really. Um, I mean, I remember, I remember the last time when we covered the Sudan revolution, um, back in 2019. I always sort of thought that, you know, when they entered in that sort of power sharing sort of agreement, there was always a certain availability that that wasn't ever going to last. And yeah. of course, when you, you can sort of almost make sort of historical kind of parallels with, you know, going back to the classic sort of October revolution, because we we're just talking to Marie Roberts about mm. that, um, you know, when, when the provisional government got elected in February, well, I mean, that was always sort of a very kind of unstable yeah. sort of situation. And, of course, months later, uh, the October Revolution happened. So, yeah. yeah. Probably a more recent analogue, though, would be the situation in Myanmar. Yeah, Myanmar is probably a, another yeah. good kind of example. In fact, we haven't really heard much about Myanmar in, mm. like, the past several months. But um, actually, one yeah. sort of recent news story that happened was Aunt Nam Sung Chi um, was... <laughs> She was, I think she was essentially arrested and jailed by the military and one of the, one of the basis of it was breaking COVID restrictions. So that's sort of like, yeah, um, yeah, definitely sort of reflects a certain unaccountable sense of power from, um, from the regime over there. Mm. Anyway, I might just go play a quick announcement. Um, around this time, we usually do the Green Left Access Calendar. So I'll just play a quick announcement and then we'll go on to the Green Left Access Calendar. You are listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Militantly, never you fear. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and now it is time for the Green Left Activist Calendar. Now, the first event I'd like to kind of announce is... Um, the Radical Book Sale, um, the end-of-year book sale at the Resistance Centre, which is at Level 5, 407 Swanson Street in the city, which is also the home of Green Left and um, Social Alliance as well. And that's um, that's basically having 25% off all stock from Friday, this Friday and Saturday. So the opening hours are 11am to 6pm um, th- today and also 10am to 6pm on Saturday. Um, so that's going to be happening 25% off all stock at the Resistance Centre, Level 5. 547 Swanson Street in the city. And then on um, and then on Friday um, today, there's going to be a solidarity rally at the Ansel HQ at 11 a.m. 678 Victoria Street in Richmond. Um, and f- um, there is, on 5 p.m. there's going to be a protest organised by Dangerfield workers demanding safety at work, and that's going to be happening at 5 p.m. outside the St Paul's Cathedral in the Swanson Street in the city. Mm-hmm. On at 5.30, there's going to be a rally, Human Rights, Not Another Military Pact, and that's going to be happening at 5.30pm at the State Library in Swanson Street in the city. And then, um, and then, um, there's going to be Human Rights Day, Vigil for Refugee Rights at 6.30pm at Lincoln Square, 701 Swanson Street, um, in Carlton. And that's, um, going to be organised by Refugee Action Collective. 
And then on Saturday, um, December the 11th, there's going to be an online forum, um, Javiet Alum, um, Escape from Manus, and that's going to be happening at 11am. And that's an event, I um, just want to get sort of the, the event sort of details. That. That's been an event organised by Newcastle Libraries. So, yeah, that's going to be on, um, and that might be an interesting kind of forum to go to. And then on Sunday, 12th of December, there's going to be the Socialist Alliance end of year celebration, meet our federal election candidates, and that's going to be happening at 1pm. 1 to 5 p.m. at the Coburg Lakes Reserve with speeches from 2.30. And then on Tuesday, December the 14th, there's going to be a book launch, the Public Square Project, at um, 6.30 p.m. at the Shrades Hall, 54 Victoria Street in Carlton. And then on um, Tuesday, December the 14th, there's going to be a book launch, Dangerous um, Regions and New Worlds, Radical Science Fiction, 1950 to 1985. And that's going to be happening at 7 p.m. at Buck Mulligan's 217 um, High Street in Northcote. That sounds like something that's your your interest, um, Ari. Yeah, it seems that way, but you never know. <laughs> and um, Wednesday, um, the, December the 15th, there's going to be a quarter century of NIMS in conversation with Jeff Sparrow. Um, that's going to be happening at the New International Bookshop at 54 Victoria Street in Carlton. And then on Friday, December the 7th, there's going to be a protest, NAB, um, hands off, um, Watsamanti land at 12 noon at 700 Burke Street in, um, the Docklands. So, yeah, and, um, might, I might, I might just play, I think maybe actually, this might be actually before our next interview, um, this might be a good opportunity to, to actually maybe play a song. So maybe I'll play a quick announcement and then we'll play mm. another song. So I was going to play, um, I'll potentially get a play. Let me just go look at what we've got here. Did get we a... talk about the book sale at the Resistance? Oh, yeah, we did. Oh, yeah. we did. Yep, it's all good. Cool. Finishes tomorrow. Everybody go buy stuff. <laughs> all right. So I'll just go play a quick announcement, uh, just a quick music sting, and then, yep, we'll go on to, yep, and we'll go to our third, in, um, third and last interview shortly. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, so I was just going to play Survivor's Tale by Les Thomas. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Sing us softly at the dawn Survivor's tales 
You're listening to Green Left Radio, and we are very happy to have Patricia Renald, um, who is the convener of the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network. And so we'll get to have a bit of a discussion with um, with Patricia about, you know, the kind of some of the issues related to global access to vaccines, and I guess the current situation with intellectual property rights. So, good morning, Patricia. Oh, sorry. Um, good morning, Patricia. Yeah, yeah, I made a mistake. I accidentally uh, forgot to press one button. So I was going to pass it on to Ari, to um, pos- um, who's the co-presenter, to sort of ask the kind of first question to start the discussion. Yeah. Hi, Patricia. Um, so I guess first, uh, what's the basically what's the state in terms of the the kind of fight with the the WTO, uh, the World Trade Organization, about uh, putting a uh, waiver on the uh, intellectual property rights or the copyright patents, sorry, um, of the the various vaccines. What's the status of that kind of ongoing problem? Well, over a year since South Africa and India first proposed that um, there should be a waiver on the 20-year monopoly that um, pharmaceutical companies have on vaccines for the it should be a temporary waiver for the period of the pandemic. And the reason for this is that under the current system, there's half a dozen companies that absolutely control the price and quantity of vaccines, and they negotiate with governments. And what they've been doing is um, the rich countries are first in line and poor countries are simply not getting access to vaccines. Um, if you look at it globally, countries like Australia have 80% of their population vaccinated and or more. And um, in many developing countries, the or low-income countries, the average is more like seven to eight percent, and in some countries it's as low as one and two percent. So, 
we really have a extreme inequality. Now, um, the, the date, a more detailed proposal was put forward um, in June and the debate has been going on since then in the WTO about changing these rules. Over 100 countries support the change. Australia says it supports it. The US says it supports it. But the holdouts are the EU, Switzerland, the UK and a couple of other countries where there are large pharmaceutical companies that have lobbied their governments to say no. And the WTO works on consensus. So mm. it's those countries that are really blocking this waiver. Um, if the waiver goes through, what can happen is that you can have um, manufa- increased, vastly increased manufacturing of the quantities that have the, of the vaccine that are really needed, and you could have them in regional areas. Countries like India and South Africa already produce generic medicines, so they're capable of quickly being able to produce many more millions and billions of vaccines that are now currently being produced uh, and distributing them on a more equitable basis. Yeah. So we've been campaigning... Uh, and, and there's been a very broad campaign across the globe, as I said, including governments like Australia and the US have come out and said we support this, but it still hasn't happened. Mm. Yeah, and uh, as you just mentioned, the a lot of the holdout countries um, are holding out because of lobbying from their large pharmaceutical companies. And in an article in uh, for Michael West Media, you on November 30th, you made the point that uh, Pfizer has announced a projected uh, $36 billion in vaccine revenue. That's uh, US dollars. And so <clears throat> it is kind of, it's one of those things that's like, it's very blatantly obvious that the reason that they want to avoid having the waiver, of course, is the profit motive, whereas the the problem as we keep seeing with Delta and now Omicron variants, is that the longer that big populations go unvaccinated, the um, <clears throat> the more possibility there is for these sorts of mutations and stuff to happen. So uh, as you pointed out in your article, in fact, that the, the meeting with the WTO was ironically postponed because of the Omicron uh, variant, uh, which is... That's yeah. And so can you talk to basically um, that kind of contradiction between the profit motive and the fact that the longer that these things, the longer that the waiver is withheld, the more chance there is of more variants and more vaccine-resistant variants especially? I mean, the World Health Organization said from the beginning of the pandemic that these vaccines and other treatments for the pandemic should be treated as global public goods and the knowledge to make them should be shared. And um, that is... um, The attitude of the pharmaceutical companies is clearly the opposite of that. They Mm. want to keep the monopoly. And um, it's it's worth noting that 36 billion US dollars is larger than the um, government budgets of many (laughs) developing countries. Um, So it really is a a situation that's becoming obscene in Mm. terms of... Profits versus um, profits being made while millions of people are dying and more um, more infectious or worse variants of the uh, of the um, of the virus develop. What's happening in, at the moment after the um, 
postponement of the WTO meeting. Um, they, that was an in-person meeting. That's why it was postponed. Mm. Um, but there are continuing online meetings, which have been going on all along, specifically to discuss this particular um, the, the waiver proposal. Um, and uh, the pressure has been growing. Um, with the Omicron variant, it makes it even more urgent because, for instance, companies like Pfizer and um, governments are deciding now that, or recommending now, that everyone have a third shot to deal with the Omicron variant. And, of course, that means the global supply of vaccines is even more um, in crisis. Um, the pharmaceutical companies have their own arguments. They claim that they can meet global demand, but clearly they haven't been. Yeah. There is a, a global um, donation scheme called COVAX, which countries are meant to donate um, vaccines to, but that hasn't been working. It had a target of... 2 billion vaccines by the end of this year it hasn't met that target. It's, mm. it's only distributed less than 1 billion. And the World Health Organization is saying that their target for this year was 40% of the global population being vaccinated. We're nowhere near that, and um, especially in developing countries. But even the, the total global percent forty uh, percent target is not being met, and we're not going to meet anything like the seventy percent target by the middle of next year, which is the other World Health Organization target. So it is really a crisis, and it will be an enormous failure of the WTO of the WTO if it can't um, reach a decision about this to have the waiver um, in the next week or so. They're having actually having meetings today and on the sixteenth of December. Mm-hmm. And I want I want to come in, um, Patricia, with a bit of a question as well, um, because um, especially since you are the co-convener of the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network, I kind of want to hear about you know some of the work that um, um, a um, AF um, Ti Net is um, doing in terms of um, lobbying um, the, the the current the, our current government, like what are kind of the demands that we're kind of putting to the federal government, and because the federal government can clearly potentially play a role in this. And I guess what is actually, actually probably we haven't even gotten through the first part of this, that question I really sort of asked, I guess, what is actually Australia's positioning in all of this? Um, and yeah, what, 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 are, what is, what are they, what is Australia doing or not doing in terms, in relation to vaccine inequality? We've been um, campaigning on this since last year and um, together with, um, our 60 organisations, which include unions, um, public health organisations, environment groups, um, retirees and so on, church groups. Um, we've also made alliances with other international organisations such as Amnesty and MSF, Doctors Without Borders. And we have um, had meetings with individual... We, we had a petition um, which was signed by 50,000 um, people in Australia supporting the waiver. Um, we did a survey which showed that um, over 60% of Australians support the waiver across different political parties. We met with politicians, uh, individual politicians, as well as the minister and shadow minister and crossbenchers. And the result of all that was that in September the government did announce that it publicly supported the waiver. However, um, we wanted them to 
actually sponsor the way, but there are actually 64 co-sponsors as well as 100 supporting organisations, um, a total of 100 supporting organisations, including the 64 um, sponsors. The, gov- the government has said it doesn't want to actually sponsor the waiver because it, it's trying to play the role of a broker between those who support the waiver and the ones who oppose it, like the EU and the UK and Switzerland and so on. We've said to them that's not good enough. They should actually be actively sponsoring the waiver and doing a lot more. And um, we have had uh, questions asked in Senate estimates and have... Um, put out a number of media releases and had quite a lot of media publicity about the fact that the government isn't doing enough um, to actually get the waiver through. Hmm. And um, I guess um, we're probably running a bit out of, I guess, out of kind of time now. And I guess, um, do you have, I guess, any kind of final comments to to make? And especially and if there's any sort of way that, um, you know, our listeners can even support, um, can support the ongoing work that you're doing in this area. Yes, well, we have. Uh, I should have mentioned that we've also organised um, rallies in uh, against the Pfizer um, company in Sydney, and we had a rally in Melbourne as well outside the German em- embassy representing the EU. Um, we may be organising further actions in future, but at the moment, over the Christmas period, we're urging people to go to our website and um, sign a petition which has been organised by the Global Nurses Union. And this petition points out that the UN Human Rights um, Commission has already said that the failure to support the waiver and have vaccine equity is a violation of human rights and people's right to life and health. And um, this petition is demanding that the UN actually make an investigation into this failure, um, especially the behaviour of the countries that are blocking um, this um, life-saving waiver. Uh, So they can go to our website and sign on to that petition. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, um, Patricia. And, um, yeah, I think this is definitely a kind of a very kind of important issue. And I think really, yeah, in terms of like, this whole kind of pandemic, this pandemic is going to continuously be prolonged until this whole issue of global access um, to vaccines um, is resolved. And yeah, and I definitely commend um, the work that you're doing in terms of um, in terms of campaigning on this area. So yeah, thank you very much, um, Patricia. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. See you. All right. Um, so we're just having a discussion with Patricia um, Renard, um, who is the convener of the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network, um, about all the kind of issues related to global access to vaccines in the current um, situation with intellectual property mm. rights. And she mentioned that there was a uh, petition on their website, which just for people, we'll probably put the link up with the podcast as well. But for anybody who's uh, got the capacity to jot it down, is it is AFTI net.org.au uh, if you want to go to the website to find that petition. Yeah, and um, I thought we're, we're getting probably to the end of the program, but I thought I would actually probably just make, I guess, a few comments, um, especially in, in relation to, I guess, um, the interview that we had just kind of did, because um, um, we've actually just printed, um, we've actually just printed um, an article as part of actually for Green Left as part of the Fighting Fund column, which um, is titled um, Omicron: A Reminder That Global Solidarity Is Needed to Overcome, overcome COVID-19. Now. Peter Boyle, who kind of wrote this kind of article, kind of points out that Green Left was really probably among the first kind of voices to point out that global solidarity was needed to overcome overcome the COVID-19 pandemic and that any attempt at a one-country solution was ultimately kind of futile. Now, 
One of the kind of things is, of course, you know, the richest countries probably had the means to kind of lock out the rest of the world for a while. Of course, that's where we had obviously all the border, international border closures, etc. But of course, in the end, and of course, they also monopolize kind of vaccine production and distribution. But of course, in the end, that has clearly is not working kind of forever. And essentially, as sort of Patricia sort of um, was kind of coming for, and this is just drawing on the article um, that has been written for Green Left, you know, global vaccine apartheid has really created a situation in which citizens of the world's richest countries, like Australia, I mean, like, like we can't sort of really deny the privilege that Australia has in this. Like, mm. you know, I, I sometimes find some of the discourse around COVID to be a bit interesting, actually, because I think, you know, because we've sort of escaped the kind of pandemic, the worst impacts of the pandemic, I mean, we haven't necessarily escaped, when we all had to go through lockdowns at some point, especially in um, in Australia, which is probably one of the more lockdown cities uh, in in the global north. Mm. But I mean, I think you know we we've in a sense avoided the kind of worst parts of the crisis. We haven't had to deal with thousands of people dying a day, like countries like the United States or or Britain. But you know, <laughs> the kind of situation we're kind of in is you know we most of our, the majority of us are vaccinated yet you have to point out that half the world's population has yet to at least receive one COVID-19 vaccine dose, mm. which means that at least 3.4 billion people remain completely unvaccinated. And then I remember, yeah, a friend on Facebook actually sort of made a, made a sort of um, a comment like saying that, you know, um, I do not, I don't, because everyone's going to be asked, um, everyone's going to be getting boosters. And I mean, I think people probably should get the booster in Australia in, in theory. But I mean, this is a sort of important point. And you were saying, you know, I, I do, I don't want a booster until most of the, until the rest of the global South gets their first vaccine um, dose. And I think, you know, hmm. it's a fair kind of principle and a fair principle point to make because, yeah, while we're going to be lining up for our boosters, especially if the government decides to make it mandatory at some point, uh, um, to continue work and, and so on. A lot of us in Australia are going to have the privilege of getting our booster shots for that extra protection from COVID-19 uh, in the context of very low COVID transmission, whereas there's countries in the global south that are dealing with tens and thousands of cases a day, and many of them don't even have access to vaccines. So I think that is just a, in a complete kind of injustice and also mm. in an, a complete indictment of the global capitalist system that is really created these conditions um, for both the COVID-19 pandemic and it's continued to prolong the, um, the COVID-19 pandemic by withholding kind of vaccines. Yeah, and I wanted to make the point quickly that um, in terms of the border closures and stuff, I doubt any of our listeners are in support of that, but in terms of that sort of thing, a lot of that has been very blatantly racist, especially with the Omicron variant, because the reason that it was spotted in Southern Africa is not because that's where it started, but because South African scientists have been making a real point of keeping track of what's going on with COVID. And so the fact that they discovered it is not surprising, considering that's kind of what they're doing. And we blocked travel to Southern Africa when they weren't even the majority of countries that had confirmed Omicron outbreaks is just it's africa yeah. you know well we have like one minute left i would have liked to just make one last comment there um but yeah um i, I don't have time so <laughs> like to thank all our listeners and um all food for kind of thought um yeah stay tuned for next friday because i think we'll we'll have a bit of a final live to air kind of program and then it'll be summer programming for the rest of the week and we actually have some good content sort of planned for the summer program and i'll I'll let listeners know about it next week. So you're listening to Green Left Radio, 3CR, 855 AM. See ya.
This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from your slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.